This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and give my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And in this program tonight, you'll hear how much First Nations knowledge is needed in approaching the collapse of biodiversity and ecosystems that we've caused in a very short amount of time. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show and Salut Babette! My name is Vivian Langford and tonight is the first in a series of talks from the Climate Emergency Summit in Melbourne Town Hall. This session is called Ecosystems in Collapse. The speakers were all top scientists and the MC was Joe Chandler, whose books and journalism have helped us understand what's happening in the natural world, especially Antarctica. It was a very sobering experience to hear Charlie Verron, whose world expertise on corals is just fabulous to hear him talk about the spreading death on the Great Barrier Reef. This was his life's work and it sounds like the lack of funding and interest has left him crushed. He's trying to create a biobank like a Noah's Ark of corals and not getting much government support. We hear also from David Lindenmeyer the great defender of forest life. He's been on this program's program before, very memorably telling us about just the habitat that is destroyed once you bring in logging, but much worse when the forest dries out and burns, as now. He wants to turn farmers into citizen ecologists in the great drawdown project that we must fast forward. And it's something that city people can be partners in too. Lastly, the famous atmospheric scientist Michael Mann talks about his holiday here, seeing bushfires, drought and coral bleaching all in the one holiday, and his forceful message to us to stop exporting coal and gas. For those counting the present cost of climate change, he says, remember, in an uninhabitable planet, there is no economy. And he really talks about getting multidisciplinary scientists, getting people who are across several disciplines involved because having things in silos has more or less kept us quiet all these years and having the people who get the bigger picture and start ringing the alarm about that will perhaps get some movement. It's a marvellous discussion and if you want to send this podcast to your MP, for example, the criminal indifference all these scientists talk about, may start to dissolve. It starts with author Joe Chandler. This session is around looking at ecosystems in collapse, the biodiversity and ecological emergency. And obviously we were in the throes of a large-scale extinction event even before the devastation that we've seen this summer through drought and bushfire. Um, so we're very privileged and honoured uh, to have these scientists here today because they've all got the credentials, the history and the passion to give us some really deep perspective on what's played out so far, what they anticipate might happen next and what must be done about it. Um, so I'm going to 
introduce the first of our panelists now, David Lindenmeyer. So David is a uh, Professor of Ecology and Conservation at, at Conservation Biology at the Australian National University. Um, his credentials list, when I looked at it, is really quite formidable and very long, so I'm just going to um, crush it down a little bit. He's a landscape ecologist and conservation biologist specialising in forest ecology and management, habitat fragmentation, applied wildlife and conservation management, endangered species conservation and extinction risk, amongst other things. And what a pity it is that those are such live areas of interest. So, David, if I could ask you interesting process here. I, I, I must admit that I feel almost ashamed to be a white male on, on a panel like this. I, I do work very closely with Indigenous people and I think the Indigenous voice really does need to be heard in terms of land management and, and thinking about the custody of Australia's natural asset. The notion of what's happening here is that there really is a climate emergency. There really is a climate emergency and we really do need to, to think about what it's telling us and do something about it. It's a clear and present danger. And I think about the plants and animals that are actually integrating climate and weather on an almost daily basis. And if you go back to the very roots of ecology, it's actually climate that governs their patterns of distribution and abundance. Right back to Nelson in 1927 when he first started to see the discipline of ecology emerge. So Distributions of things are changing rapidly all over the planet. It doesn't matter whether it's tree lines going up or whether it's tropical fish invading temperate waters off Tasmania. And widespread trees, we, we see background levels of tree, a tree death at levels 10 to 100 background levels for, for the forests that we work in. And then I come back to our friend the greater glider. The greater glider is an extraordinary animal. Yeah, a racist nightmare. It comes in a black form and it comes in a white form and it interbreeds. <laughs> and that animal was once common just about everywhere you looked. And you go to North Queensland where there's an extraordinary small, small animal, 89% decline in the last 20 years. In the forest in Victoria, just an hour and a half drive from here, 80% decline. That animal is, is susceptible to, to fire, it's susceptible to logging, but it's also a very heat sensitive animal. It's very sensitive to climate change, particularly overnight temperatures. And so then we come back to the links between climate and fire, as we've seen. That when it's wet and when it's cool, it basically doesn't burn. And when it's hot and when it's dry and it's windy, it does. So climate and weather are the two key drivers of forest fire danger index and the, and the, uh, the fire systems that we're seeing now. The, the culture wars will have us talking about hazard reduction burning and why we didn't burn more, more parks and those kinds of things. But actually the dominant driver that we have to take into account when we are analysing fire behaviour and, and other things is weather and climate. So the, the effects of fire are really quite pronounced. We've been looking at what's been happening in East Gippsland in the last few weeks. So really stark outcomes. Some ecosystems have burned not twice, not three times, but four times in the last 25 years. The natural fire return interval in those systems is between 50 and 100 years. So those ecosystems are sitting on the brink of collapse. They don't need more fire. 
they need less disturbance to reset on the, on the recovery trajectory. So what are some of the solutions? Well, clearly, we need to think about the number of stresses that some of these ecosystems are dealing with. Some of these ecosystems are dealing with a change in climate, a change in fire regimes, intensive logging operations, the impacts of exotic animals such as horses and deer. They're not geared to deal with so many disturbances in such a rapid succession. We have to take out some of those key drivers, those stresses if those systems are going to have any hope of, of persisting. And then we, then we hear other things. People say, well, what are we going to do for timber if we don't log our native forests? And here in Victoria, the answer is absolutely staring you in the face. Victoria produces 3.9 million tonnes of eucalypt pulp logs every year to make it paper. 2.9 million tonnes gets exported to Japan and China. And often we then ex we import them back to Australia after having shipped them 6,000 kilometres offshore. So if we're talking about maintaining jobs in the state and thinking about new economies, we should be actually processing some of that material here and rethinking what the values are of some of our natural assets. So how does that fit into the equation? It fits into the equation through thinking about reducing emissions, that's clear, but also increasing the amount of carbon that's stored in some of these ecosystems. And maintaining intact forests is one of the critical things that we can do. There are other really important things to do as well. The Murray-Darling Basin used to have somewhere between 20 and 23 billion trees. Now it's at 8 billion trees. So there's enormous opportunities to revegetate parts of those catchments and to renovate farm dams. 650,000 farm dams in the Murray-Darling Basin need renovating with trees and tree cover and other changes. Is that a big effect? Absolutely. It's about the, the effect of, of the, the landfill sector in terms of emissions. So lots of important and exciting things to be done to tackle, uh, to tackle these problems. So to me, that's the new economy, the new opportunities, and the things that we can really do to start to turn around some of the problems that we're dealing with in this conference. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Now it's my great privilege to introduce Charlie Barron, um, marine scientist and coral expert extraordinaire. Um, I don't know where to begin with Charlie. He's one of Australia's most storied marine scientists former head of our Australian Institute of Marine Science, responsible for discovering maybe something like 20% of the world's corals, roughly. <laughs> um, I once, uh, he has been called, I think, the godfather of coral. I think I once called him in a story, The Old Man of the Sea, which I don't think he appreciated at the time. Um, I do recall when I first met him and interviewed him back in 2008 when I was on the age. Um, had just published an extraordinary book, A Reef in Time, Harvard Press. And he confessed to me, or told me, that not so long ago before, he, he had been a climate sceptic, deeply sceptical. He told me about how he had thought, having studied Australia's Great Barrier Reef so deeply, that for more than this thing, this uh, more than 25 million years in the making, a, quote, icon primordial wilderness... He thought this was the, you know, this was the greatest structure created by life on Earth, and the very idea that it might be mortally threatened within the span of a generation or two, he had once considered preposterous. He then looked at the science, and he looked at me, and he said, "I was wrong." There is always a risk that I'm going to 
going to be quite unprofessional and actually cry. Um, and if I do, please don't let that interfere with your appreciation of the discussion. But I do sometimes feel like we're talking about another planet and not the one that we're actually sitting on in here. So I think we have got to the point. My tipping point is that the tears are falling often when we have these discussions. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, so I'm going to hand over now. Oh, the other quote I remember from Charlie was just two years ago, three years ago, the first of the two um, back-to-back bleaching events, and I called him and asked him what he saw going on, and he said, I feel like I'm watching a picnic on a railroad track, and I'm screaming to the people, get off, the train is coming, and they're just drinking and eating and enjoying themselves and not listening. So, Charlie Barron, thank you. to say, give it away with the climate skip. <laughs> but that was a very long time ago. Um, but I was. And um, when someone said that humans are producing too much carbon dioxide, that would change the climate up by <laughs> And that persisted for a little while. And I have to admit that um, I, someone pointed out a book that I published um, a long, long time ago. I found some white coral, I found some white coral in the book and said it's some white disease that these corals are getting. I had no idea it was anything to do with climate change. But I did straighten out the climate change bit very quickly. I got a big, had a big, this Google obviously wasn't there, nor in fact, this wasn't there from this time. Um, and I certainly found out pretty quickly the, uh, the basic truth about what carbon dioxide did in the atmosphere. And after that, I took it very, very seriously. Um, but it was not part of my job, and it was my job was to mind everybody else's business about the research that was done at Australian Institute of Marine Science, where I was sort of I was the chief scientist, and um, and we moved on. Um, and I was, I suppose, what provoked me in the end was the ABC they put on another journalist. They hold this one. They put on a scientist about climate change and they'd always put on a skeptic to counter it to balance it, they said. And that really annoyed me in the end. And so um, <clears throat> I disappeared from my institute for a year and a half with my family in France. There to study climate change more than I've ever studied for any university degree. And I came back and wrote um, the book, yeah, uh, um, uh, A Reef in Time, The Great Barrier Reef from Beginning to End. And uh, that was the catamaran of pigeons because I'd stood together so many different sorts of sciences. And to cut a long story short, that about six months later, I was giving a, an emergency presentation to the Royal Society in London with David Attenborough <coughs> next to me as adjudicator. And uh, that was a, to the Great Hall there, it was packed solid. And I was then saying the IPCC was not conservative, it was just dead wrong. And the reason I was so sure the IPCC was wrong is that I had a lot of research done by Exxon, and that was exactly what we heard about this, uh, this morning, and I've never heard that referred to. Ever, ever before or since, but that is why I was so right and the IPCC was so wrong. Thank you, excellent. <laughs> so today um, I'm going to talk about, now I'm going to talk about three things very briefly. One is being up to date about the Great Barrier Reef, what's going on there. 
Uh, secondly, about the um, what's become of the um, sort of um, information, the encyclopedia of uh, of corals um, uh, that uh, our website. And the third is a, uh, a wonderful idea that's just just been born as of the end of last year about uh, making a, a coral biobank. Now I'll go through those in reverse because it makes sense that way. The coral biobank, the idea of the coral bank, biobank is that uh, we collect every species of coral starting on the Great Barrier Reef, which is about just over 70% of all the species of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, collect them and keep them alive in aquaria indefinitely and export bits and pieces all over the world to all the many uh, aquaria all over the world, public and private. And so when they, I won't say if they go extinct, I'll say when and if they go extinct in the wild, we will have them in aquaria. And that may seem a pretty far-fetched thing, but it isn't. Corals can be kept in aquaria indefinitely and is now the technology of doing that is not difficult. So that is the plan at the moment. It's starting this year, and uh, I've got the job of collecting uh, all the different, all the species of coral on the Great Barrier Reef. It is no trivial thing, and uh, we've got some professional aquarium people to take it over from there. We've got DNA people to go into the DNA. We've got museums to cry to, 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 to preserve it in their cryogenic facility, and so on. So this is a tremendously important step to make. Uh, need I say it's not got any government support. Um, so the second subject I was going to talk on, like to talk on, is a website that I've spent an awful lot of my life building with uh, my three colleagues. It's called, do you have a PowerPoint? Uh, can we on the PowerPoint? Is that, can I do that from here? Um, ah, there, that's, the that's what you can get if you uh, Google Corals of the World, you get that. That, that website is um, about as big as Qantas, it's as e equally as complicated, it's, um, but it is fairly user-friendly, but the information it contains, it contains um, all, it's an encyclopedia of corals. Uh, not just according to what Charlie Baron says, but according to what Charlie Baron and the whole rest of the world uh, has to say. Um, it took a very long time to produce, and it was essentially done because I uh, produced a, a big three-volume book about corals, which was published in the year 2000, and I was seeing it was going out of date within years. It was going out of date very quickly, and this is a very, it was the most expensive publication in Australian history at that time. And so you don't just do another one, you don't do another version, you don't do an update. What you do do is a website. And from uh, about 2005, uh, we started doing this website, and it's now used um, absolutely all over the world. And uh, I think if you've all gone to the very large expense of buying the books, Carl, of the world, chuck them in the wheelie bin, they're no use. Now, that is what our website should look now, should look like now. Uh, but it doesn't look like that because uh, we launched it in 2016 and we thought, wow, we're going to be able to find the rest of this thing. Uh, there was two more jobs to do. One was very big and the other one was very small. 
the very big job was to integrate all our knowledge of corals with uh, 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 information bank about the environment. Um, all, all the environmental work of NOAA and all the colleagues, all our colleagues, working on national parks, marine parks, uh, you name it, you can lay on maps and then you can ask the most sophisticated of questions right down to species level. Um, uh, that hasn't been done. And I do think now it never will be done, but if we ever got serious about conserving corals, it definitely should be done. But anyhow, and the second one is called Coral ID, which is also not there. Um, it, it is on this one. It's not in the one you'll be able to uh, get up. Um, coral ID is, allows you all, everybody, to identify corals to species level. It's been a huge challenging task. It's taken us... I think uh, if you added it all together, it would have taken about 12 people years of work. And it's not there now because the trivial amount of funding, perhaps one of um, uh, the Prime Minister's women's changing rooms would have been enough money to do it. We we can't, we run out of money ourselves, we can't do it. And so it sits there, it sits there spinning around on the computer, and the rest of the world has to come and ask me what colours what, and often for the projects they've got to go out and collect the stuff for them. So what we did when we um, when we did and we initially launched our website there, uh, we put up this notice which effectively says, uh, don't cite this website yet, we still have to do finishing touches. And that notice has been there now for three years. And so we've struggled to get any funding at all. And the reason we can't is the government announcement that they're going to spend $440 million on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, uh, most of our work has been funded from Americans, not Australians. Um, and they came to the party, and yes, they'll, they'll, they, they were going to provide the funding for me to finish the identification module. And I said, don't worry, the Australian government's going to do it. Easily. And Robert in, well, Australian government isn't, and they won't. And that's it. So um, that's the sad story about what has been a, a very successful idea about getting all the information about corals onto a single website, which you can all access for nothing. The third thing um, uh, I was going to, I'd like to just mention, is an update about the Great Barrier Reef. Um, I expect everyone here knows that it's been clobbered by mass bleaching, and 2015-16 saw two consecutive years, and roughly half of all the corals of the Great Barrier Reef died in those two years. And for those of you who are familiar with go diving or familiar with the Great Barrier Reef, it is really quite horrific to see um, what happened in those two years. Uh, that got a lot of publicity and all over the world, the Great Barrier Reef and um, uh, the outlook for that. Of course, I got very outspoken about that you know, on endless television, docos and so on, complaining. Um, but last year, um, I joined a, uh, a, a trip, first trip of, well, the second trip of an organisation that calls itself Legacy. It's a purely private thing, and uh, for very little money at all, we trooped all over the northern Great Barrier Reef. I can tell you right now, if you want to see a coral reef, forget the northern Great Barrier Reef because it virtually doesn't exist. 
far further to the north, right at the tip, there are pockets of nice, pretty, high-diversity reefs that uh, I need to plunder in order to collect corals for the coral biobank. But as far as the northern Great Barrier Reef is concerned, forget it, they're not there anymore. Um, to see any, to go anywhere in the northern Great Barrier Reef, which used to be the highest diversity, easy the most pristine, there's no river runoff. There, I saw one crown of thorns in, the, in, in three weeks. And it was the thin and hungry crown of thorns, of course, it's no great. Um, so that's incredibly what has now happened to the Great Barrier Reef. Further south, south from about Port Douglas, things start to get uh, not good but better, and further south they're quite good in most places, except the inshore reefs. Now, all this is Russian roulette. Maybe, maybe this year, it will be a good year, it will be, because the sea temperature started off at a so, such a so low level in the Western Coral Sea. Maybe next year will be a good year, maybe not. The whole of the Great Barrier Reef could be wiped out in one single year. If you can wipe out one reef in the same conditions, you'll wipe out the whole lot. So this whole huge Australia's icon, the place that's so much... It's so closely associated with Australia is really facing an impossible dilemma, which is why we started the Coral Biobank. Um, if the Coral Biobank were to, were to depend on the, the once pristine reefs of the Great Barrier Reef, the Northern Great Barrier Reef, it would all be too late. So, on that, I can't help but be very gloomy when talking on this subject because there are no jokes. I usually have lots of jokes in my presentations to students, and sometimes they get a bit rough, uh, especially about their lectures. And, but no, there are no jokes on this one. Uh, we are in dire straits, and uh, we're not getting much help. Gajagurujan, Gunderman, this is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. We have one more panellist, of course. I'm not sure what this bloke is. <laughs> so Michael Mann needs no introduction to any of you and, and he won't give a presentation here, but we just thought we'd invite him along to join our panel discussion. So I guess my first question, having heard David give us a bit of a terrestrial outlook and Charlie give us the, the deep dive into the grim story that's occurring in the marine environment... Um, as an atmospheric specialist, um, what are your comments and reflections on what you've heard from me today? Yeah, well, it's very sobering. And, and by the way, um, I'm participating in this panel because they told me I had to to get free lunch. <laughs> this, this was an additional responsibility. No, it's, um, I, I'm humbled to be on, on a panel with two of the true experts when it comes to sort of the terrestrial and the uh, marine ecology of um, what we're witnessing right now. And it's tragic, and I'm sort of uh, speaking as an outsider, right? Um, to me, Australia, you know, this iconic country with the Great Barrier Reef, with the koalas, with the um, um, and, and all the other uh, amazing, um, unique uh, animals, uh, which are under threat by climate change. Whether it's the Great Barrier Reef, which is under the twin threats, by the way, of uh, both bleaching uh, due to high sea surface temperatures and ocean acidification. And this is relevant, by the way, when you hear people talk about uh, techno, uh, techno solutions uh, to the climate problem. 
like geoengineering or putting particles into the stratosphere to reflect back uh, some of the sunlight to try to cool down the earth. Uh, apart from all of the other disastrous impacts that could have, it would do absolutely nothing about the ocean acidification problem, uh, the sort of the other climate, uh, carbon problem. Um, and so uh, this is, I think, coral reefs in particular are an example of a system that is under simultaneous stresses, um, ocean acidification, bleaching, uh, pollution, uh, increased UV uh, from ozone depletion, apparently that has had some role as well. Um, and you know, we all know we are living creatures ourselves. When we are under simultaneous threats, uh, we perform far worse. Um, uh, it's far more difficult to respond to multiple threats. So I think that the, the Great Barrier Reef, it's this iconic you know, um, entity, one of the, the, the great wonders of our planet, uh, and it is also under these multiple assaults that are a result of our impact on the environment. And, and I, too, worry that, um, you know, my, uh, my wife and daughter came down with me um, at the beginning of my sabbatical here uh, in mid-December, and we went up to Cairns um, to actually see the Great Barrier Reef. We wanted to see the Great Barrier Reef while we still could. Um, and I don't, you know, we didn't know how much longer we might have. That's very sad. It's very sad for me to imagine that my daughter will not have that same opportunity with, with her children. Uh, that is a possible future. It's a future that we can still forestall. Um, if we keep warming below one and a half degrees Celsius, if we keep CO2 levels below you know, 420, 430 parts per million, maybe, um, if, and if we can slow it down, you know, adaptation you know, the corals have adapted to very large, slow changes in the geologic past. So to the extent that we can slow this down, maybe that provides them a glimmer of hope. But it's, uh, it's a tragedy that's unfolding. As a climate scientist, um, often I view this problem through the prism of theoretical models and, uh, and data crunching numbers. But when you come here to Australia, you actually see it very own two eyes. You see the impacts of climate change playing out, whether it's the Great Barrier Reef, and then uh, our family then next went to the Blue Mountains, which were not blue. Um, the, the, the skies were not blue. They were filled with smoke. Um, you could smell it. Um, you couldn't see the, the lush uh, rainforests in the valley. Uh, you couldn't see the majestic cliffs and ridges um, that are so iconic. And so we felt like we were witnessing the destruction of, of this land. Um, and it was a very sad experience for us. And, and it drove home for me the fact that um, you know, this is not a theoretical problem. Uh, when you come here to Australia, you see that dangerous climate change has arrived. And the question is, are we going to respond in time? Uh, I was thinking. Um, there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago authored by a large number of eminent Australian scientists about renewal ecology. Um, one of the people that was an author of that was David Bowman, a forest specialist now at um, University of Tasmania. Um, I went to Tas Tasmanian Highlands with, um, with uh, David Bowman last year researching a story, looking at some work he was doing around trying to save the pencil pines of Gondwanan species. And, this renewal ecology, I guess it's kind of like emergency ecology, this idea that we have to rethink the way that we manage 
um, around the recognition that Eden is long gone, Eden is lost, we can't restore these systems. This is about salvage in some ways. It was arc. Yeah, and these really confronting questions. Of, um, and we saw it for real in the fires that we've just had where we saw that really um, aggressive intervention to save the Wollamai Pine. Um, he's, Bowman's talking about similar interventions within the Tasmanian wilderness, like carving out areas to preserve pencil pines and other habitat. Um, these are confronting ideas that we have to recognise how much has been lost and then think really strategically and aggressively about what we might do to salvage something. I'm just wondering what you what your thinking is on, on that front, whether that's something that you're thinking about or what your own strategies are about where to from here. So this, in many cases what I often think about is, is coming back to the number of stresses in the system and what, what stresses you can take out. So thinking about leverage points. So dealing with the amount of carbon in the atmosphere is a, is a big global problem. And, and so that's that we, we have to do that, but there are other things that we can intervene with at, at a, that are more tractable more quickly. So, uh, for example, um, in the mainland context, taking, taking logging, which is a significant driver out of the system, because it interacts with fire. We know from our empirical work and work from others that, that the way the forest is logged will make the fire more prone, uh, the forest more prone to higher severity fire layer. So if we take out that factor and then its interaction with how much fire is occurring, then we start to take some of the stresses away for, for some of these systems to be able to, to recover. And there will be need for more heroic interactions. We're already seeing that in Kangaroo Island with some of the threatened species there. So we, we do actually now have to, to do some mapping exercises as to which are the, the really important strategic bits? Where, where have we got to intervene? What kinds of things can we do to, to intervene if we want to hold on to things like Wollongong pine or, or, or other upcoming species? We see places burning now that should never burn. Subtropical rainforests should never burn. So, okay, that's the case. What do we need to do to make sure that, that the bits that haven't burned won't And they will have to be some products there. Charlie, I guess the projects you've talked about here are, you know, virtual coral collections and, and you know, collecting these, the, you know, the specimens to have them you know, in a laboratory somewhere. I guess that's the extreme the idea of, of, of um, renewal or you know, ecological emergency life support. Well, um, it's a bit like a seed bank, and um, it's going to be needed. It will be needed. I think now is it's very hard to tell if the coral goes extinct. Just means if you, if you don't find it, you might find the next data. But um, I know of seven seven now corals that used to be common I haven't seen in, in years um, or in two years, and there's been a lot of diving and looking out for it. Um, so I do think we're going to get um, into extinctions very heavily over the next few years, and. That's the extinction of species. What really matters is the extinctions of the, of the habitat, of coral reefs themselves. Um, at least 30, perhaps anything up to 80% of all marine species have some part of their life cycle in a coral reef. If you look at the geological record of corals, and this has got the best geological record of, you can possibly have, um, 
the uh, a, a mass extinction, then all but one case has got a prelude, the, the wiping out of corals. Um, so you wipe out corals, then the whole ecology of the ocean collapses. I'm afraid I think this is going to happen, and I think it's that serious. And I feel just so sorry for the people, the young people today, because they're going to face a horrific world. And I do believe this is going to happen. And um, it makes me very sad. Um, so not only our job at this with the Coral Bank is to preserve corals into the future so that they can be used to repopulate um, reefs that we've lost, but the turnaround time is going to be incredibly long. And also, um, the lag time, as we call it, of the oceans is at least 20 years. In other words, where the oceans are responding now to levels of carbon dioxide down about the turn of the century. It takes uh, maybe, would this be right, Michael? You'd know more, much more about this than I would. About 20 years to that lag time to really kick in. It's like putting a saucepan on a stove. Slowly it warms to the slope. It comes into equilibrium with the flame under it. But it's a very slow process. So even if we were to wave a magic wand and stop emissions now, the oceans would keep warming for another 20 years on the level of carbon dioxide we have now. Is that okay to say that? Yeah, um, at the surface, um, the, the oceans are roughly in equilibrium with the CO2 concentrations. This is uh, actually, there's been some revision in the understanding uh, of this in, in more recent years because climate modelers use a, a more appropriate modeling framework. Uh, now, we, we used to specify the CO2 level. Now we specify the carbon input into the atmosphere, and that allows for some of these uh, carbon cycle dynamics. For example, the ocean takes up uh, some of that uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and so it turns out when you stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere, um, there's the thermal inertia of the ocean, which would cause the surface of the ocean to continue to warm up for decades. But you also have a dramatic increase in ocean uptake of carbon dioxide. So the atmospheric CO2 goes down. That almost cancels the thermal inertia of warming. And the bottom line is the warming at the surface that we see right now is a function of the cumulative emissions up to now. We stop emitting carbon, temperatures stop warming at the surface. The problem is that isn't true below the surface. Um, the farther down you go, the more of a lag time there is. Uh, with the deep ocean, it can be out of equilibrium by hundreds of years. It can take hundreds of years for the deep ocean to warm up. And where is that CO2 going, the atmospheric CO2? It's going into the ocean. That's not good. Um, ocean acidification continues to proceed even after we stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere. That's one of the reasons for worry here. Well, I'd like to start by saying thank you to all of the panelists and to you, Joe, as well, for your, your time and your energy that you spent on this topic. Is it possible that we can garden our way back to a normalized climate? Obviously, it will be all hands on deck. It would, it would take a massive an amazing and a massive effort, but do you think it's possible? You know, thanks for, the, for the, that question. It's, it's, it's an important one. And, and at, at the margins that can have an influence, reforestation, the natural uptake of CO2 uh, can help. But ultimately, if we don't stop burning fossil fuels, the rest of it is like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It, 
doesn't make any difference. And we have to stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere. In addition to that, we also have to do these other things. Um, we have to increase natural carbon uptake uh, and reforestation. And there are lots of reasons to do that, right? Because climate is just one axis of this problem. Um, we're talking about biodiversity. We're talking about the stability of ecosystems. There are all these other reasons to want to preserve our, our terrestrial and marine ecosystems. So it's a no-brainer, but that alone isn't going to do it. We've got to stop burning fossil fuels. What's your position on deep-sea mining, which involves dredging the floor for cobalt nodules? Yes, you're talking about uh, vents, um, undersea vents, and that's a big deal. The undersea vents and everything else you don't know about. You leave them alone until you do, do, do know about them, that mining of undersea vents is going on without people having a clue what they're doing. If you're really wanting to go and get uh, calcium carbonate and limestone from deep water, go ahead, there's so much with their domain movements. There's, there, there's the oceans are alkaline, they will always be alkaline, and um, the, we really are concerned with the... Um, the top, say, a kilometre at the very most of, of, of the oceans. And so that is what really matters. What is happening is moving so quickly that um, I just think uh, Michael hit the nail on the head again and again when it's, it's all about stopping what we're doing. And that really is about coal. It is about generating electricity and going into renewables. It is about all the things we know about but we just have to get on bloody or do it because it's going to be too late within the decade or two. So that's my abrupt answer to that. I'll note that we very nearly had, I think, the world's first big vent mining exercise just in Papua New Guinea, which um, appears to have, at the moment, anyway, run out of puff and money, but may well um, reappear again. Um, there's also a lot of um, nations in the Coral Sea area wanting to, you know, the nodules that up the potatoes of a rare earth on the bottom of the sea and they're up in the speculation. Oh, there's no there, there. Yes, uh, in uh, Paul Hawkins' book, Drawdown, 12 of the top 20 options for sequestering carbon and pulling it out of the atmosphere are land-based. Uh, so there's regenerative agriculture, um, conservation agriculture, timber forests, etc. So my question is, uh, how can we turn more farmers into citizen ecologists and carbon drawdown enthusiasts and involve urban communities in the process. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And we, we've had a project working with nearly 300 farmers for the last 21 years. And in many cases, what, what's actually needed is the methodology for state and federal governments to get involved in the methodology to, to allow another form of, of payments to diversify the business model for farmers so that you can actually incentivise their ability to, to increase replantings on their land to better protect patches of remnant vegetation and to include that as part of their farm planning. And there's, there's really good science to be able to, to show how to do that. It's, it's really the, the architecture and the scaffolding around that that's in the way. Because in many parts of Australia, once you go west of somewhere like Dubbo, New South Wales or, or further out, actually carbon farming will become the most lucrative thing to do because almost everything else is, is incredibly marginal. 
Now you also have to have a lot of people working on the land, including indigenous folks for uh, early dry season burning and what have you, as well as, as uh, controlling and, and making money from other things such as controlling populations of goats and the like. So that you need people on the land, but you also need people doing other things such as promoting uh, natural regeneration and also tree planting. So there's a lot to do, but a lot of opportunities in, in what's really a new economy in this space. David, can I ask, do you uh, talk about the LNP policies when you uh, talk to farmers? Because, ah, you mean deep water there. Charlie's from Queensland. Um, and, and that's another world there. The, the reality is that many, many of the landowners are, are not in step, they're out of step with what, what some of the, the pinstripe suits are doing in, in Canberra. And they, they want alternative income streams and want to be able to diversify their farming. And they recognise that what they've been doing for the last 20 or 30 or 40 years is, is not going to end up in a happy place. And, and so there are opportunities there and there are alternative voices, but they need to, we need to be able to, to facilitate them to come through more. itself can do it all logic of profit in this climate will be our downfall not paying for the damage that we cause this changes everything don't you see this changes the world this changes This changes the world Changes the world I go all the way over from New Zealand for this Do you believe that the process of change towards the planet and the climate has also to incorporate a change, uh, us as human, our thought and our knowledge towards the planet and species on the planet in terms of like Western ideologies and the value of land rather than just the ability to use it. I, I think it does. Climate change is a classic example of the tragedy of the commons, right? Um, that uh, for the short-term profit of a small number of corporations, we are destroying the entire planet for everybody. And the problem here is that we have a corrupted sort of sense of um, how to, to value resources um, and assets. Uh, we don't place uh, proper value on functioning ecosystems and, and stable climates. Uh, as long as there's no price on carbon, as long as it costs nothing to put carbon pollution into the atmosphere, uh, there's really no impetus for um, uh, energy producers to stop doing that. And so I think this is an example of uh, where we need to sort of change our thinking about how, you know, in both our economic thinking, this can be extended to other environmental problems. Uh, ecosystems have great intrinsic value. Um, and it's not just ecosystem services. Economists love to frame this in terms of 
you know, ecosystems, their only value is what they can provide to us. Um, it doesn't recognize that there is intrinsic value in a functioning Earth. Uh, just yesterday, I actually tweeted, uh, some, somebody tweeted something about how, you know, uh, the climate change is costing the economy, you know, nearly a trillion dollars a, a year. Um, and the point here is that um, in a lifeless, you know, in an in, un, inhabitable, unhabitable planet, there is no economy. Um, and so we have for too long allowed sort of economists to frame these questions and problems very narrowly and to not properly put value, uh, intrinsic value, on functioning ecosystems in a stable climate. What can and must be done to recognize the role of biodiversity as the planet's thermostat, and what must we do to restore that? Yet yeah, life is, you know, the, the carbon cycle, um, that's basically life on Earth, is an intrinsic part of the climate system, as you alluded to. So um, we increasingly, uh, we have come to understand that you can't attack problems like climate change without appreciating um, the, the role that living things play in a habitable planet and a stable climate. And this, of course, is part of why um, we have to think about massive reforestation um, and regenerative agriculture and all of these other things. To solve the climate crisis, we're going to need to stop the problem at its source. We have to stop worsening the problem by um, you know, stopping putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere. Uh, but we also have to think very carefully about agriculture, uh, how we manage ecosystems. Um, fossil fuel burning is about two-thirds of the total carbon emissions, so it's the lion's share of the problem. But that leaves another third that has to do with land management, uh, deforestation, agriculture, all of these other things that you know, involve our relationship with life on Earth. Um, and that means to really tackle this problem, we have to stop burning fossil fuels, but we have to do all these other things as well. Yeah, I, I would add, well, I, I guess it's probably that Google Earth, Earth, Earth System Science, because we're not going to be looking at atmospheric science and marine science or whatever science. We're looking at the Earth as a system, and it's Earth System Science, which is really going to take over. It's an integrated thing, and it is big business, and it is the future of an awful lot of what was science divided up into petitions which no longer exist. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Beyond Zero Emissions, you might be wondering what we do. Well, we're a think tank, and we provide independent and ambitious solutions for Australia. We were well on display at the Climate Energy Summit where many BZD people were participating. This was a massive event at Melbourne Town Hall and I'd like to thank Luke Taylor who was one of the main organisers with the Breakthrough Foundation and Sarah McConnell because they got a lot of podcasts and videos of the sessions there on their website and you can access them. <clears throat> For tonight's show I'd like to thank the people who were guests of that session on ecosystem collapse. Even though it was so chilling, it's really marvellous to hear the integrity of those scientists who don't give up. They have been on this public platform for many, many years. They've grown old doing it and 
It's very important that we listen to their words and, as I said, send this podcast on to someone else who, who needs to hear this message and you'll be doing every, everyone a favour. So the guests tonight were Joe Chandler, David Lindenmeyer, Charlie Verin and Michael Mann. Really famous people, aren't they? Thanks also to Michaela, who got this show to air. And I'd like to finish with some victories. In the great jigsaw puzzle of life, it's hard to get the big picture, but one very important event happened this week. It was a win for the Great Australian Bight, where whales breed and kelp forests as big as the Amazon grow. And they've had a reprieve. The Norwegian company called Equinor has said they will not drill for oil in the Great Australian Bight. I also had a message from Margaret Flack from Lock the Gate Alliance and she reports from New South Wales that there's been a very worrying parliamentary committee who found that up around Narrabri, landholders would have to carry the risk of gas drilling on their land. In other words, if the gas, gas rigs spark a bushfire and destroy everything, or if they drill down too far into the aquifers of the Great Great Artesian Basin, well, the environmental damage is uninsurable and it would be all on their back. So let's hope this stops that gas, massive gas expansion in its tracks. Finish, I'd like to leave you with some words of wisdom from Joanna Macy. Her book, Active Hope, is a very good resource for activists because she's had a long history um, helping all sorts of causes uh, with her calm and with her wisdom. And she talks about tipping points and how we have to expect the phenomena of discontinuous change. It's not always linear. She says to us, with issues such as climate change and peak oil, we don't have 70 years or even 20 years to bring about the changes needed. Our problems are urgent and demand much more rapid action. Given our current slow pace of progress, it can be hard to see how we will do it. If we look at change as something that happens incrementally at a steady, predictable rate in which progress or the lack thereof in one decade gives a measure of what is likely to take place in the next, we can get very discouraged. But along with continuous change, there is also discontinuous change, sudden shifts that can happen in ways that surprise us. Structures that appear as fixed and solid as the Berlin Wall can can collapse and be dismantled in a very short time. An understanding of discontinuous change opens up a genuine sense of possibility. And because this program's all been with scientists, I love this sort of scientific um, experiment she does. Consider what happens to a bottle of water when it's left in the freezer. As it cools down, there is steady, continuous change in its temperature, The water won't change much in appearance until it begins to get near the critical threshold of its freezing point. Then, as it passes this, an extraordinary process happens. Tiny crystals form, and when they do, other crystals form around those crystals until there is a massive movement of crystallisation in the water that rapidly changes state from liquid to solid. This is discontinuous change. With discontinuous change, a threshold is crossed, where rather than just more of the same thing happening, something different occurs. There's a jump to a new level, an opening to a new set of possibilities. We might think it is, it is impossible that a small amount of water could crack something as hard as glass, but as the ice expands, it breaks the bottle. 
Even when we don't see a visible result from our actions, we may be adding to an unseen change that moves the situation closer to a threshold where something crystallizes. When a line is crossed and something new starts to happen, the change may appear to come out of nowhere. Discontinuous changes can be triggered by quite small events. And when you are close to a threshold, one tiny step can take you over it. An example of this is when a tipping point is reached and a critical mass of people starts to believe a change can happen. If those who are undecided have been hovering on the edge before, waiting to see what happens, something small can tip the balance and nudge them into giving their support. Before this threshold is crossed, the change may seem unlikely, but only a short while later, everyone wants to join in. And when you hear, you think of the, all those species that have reached tipping points and our climate itself, which is reaching tipping points, we also, in our action, our community action, our Extinction Rebellion, our Lock the Gates Alliance, all those groups that have fought to save the Great Australian Bright, there will be moments when suddenly everyone wants to join. So my name's Vivian Langford, <clears throat> Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Tune in next Monday at 5pm. Good night and good luck. Thanks to Simon Kerr tonight for his song, This Changes Everything. We should be talking, reacting to promises heard. If we just wait, be patient for the trickle down to work. Well, I don't see it. I'm skeptical of these empty words. They cannot save us, that's for sure. We wait for heaven to answer our call. We think. The market itself can do it all. Logic of profit in this climate will be our downfall. Not paying for the damage that we cause. This changes everything, don't you see? This changes the world. This changes everything. This changes the world Changes the world The climate's changing We know this The science is now clear Heat waves becoming More dangerous Than they've been before We must not wait to confront this recklessness of power when they claim it's a conspiracy of fools. This changes everything, don't you see? This changes the world. This changes everything, don't you see? This changes the world. Changes the world